Karl Barth was a Swiss reformed theologian born in the 19th century, but mainly his impact was in the 20th century. He was and is universally acclaimed as the greatest Christian theologian of the 20th century, both by Catholics and Protestants. I don't know about the Greek Orthodox. He was Orthodox in his own theology. He held some views that uh, some evangelicals would not hold, of course, but on all the major teachings of the scripture, he was very orthodox and held to them and defended them against liberalism. Bart lived uh, through the rise of Nazi Germany. He was ejected, literally ejected practically from his post at Bonn. I believe it was in 1936 for his resistance to Nazism. He ended up back in Basel, Switzerland, where he continued to resist Nazism and was the acclaimed and famous author uh, of the Barman Declaration, which was a creed, a Christian creed opposing Nazism. I bring him up because he wrote an essay in 1938 for the Christian Century magazine. 1938, mind you. Uh, and he entitled the, the uh, article, Why I Have Changed My Mind. And he had, from being liberal to conservative. Again, in 1958, in the same publication, or 48, excuse me, he, uh, he wrote another article for the same magazine with the same title. And uh, I confess that I have not read that one. And then in 1958, he wrote another article for the Christian Century magazine, How I've Changed My Mind. And um, I believe I have read that one, but I don't remember it. In 1968, he died, so he didn't write an article. It seems to me Bart had it right. Almost every 10 years or so, he had to, if you will, Revise his thinking about certain things. You might think he was unstable, but I think if he was growing and getting a deeper perspective, a fresh look at things. People who ossify are not thinking. And the mystery of Christ requires us that we go deeper and deeper and deeper. And in so doing, we will get a fresher look, a deeper look. Our base of knowledge will broaden till we will see things in a light that we never have seen them before. That is the way that Christian truth unfolds to the believer. Otherwise, you can read your Bible once, close it, and walk away. No more fresh insights. Well, I've changed my mind about our text today. Early on in my ministry, I'm sure I've preached on this text, and if you possess a Bible with some notes uh, on a possible sermon that I preached some years ago, uh, you might have to make some revisions in the margins of that Bible. So, I warn you, I have changed my mind. Now, notice my sermon topic, which is a statement. Justification is through not law, but works. Not law, but works. And here is one way that I've changed my mind. 
I would have emphasized almost totally your individual works and talk about the fact that you cannot earn your way to heaven. Well, now that's true. There's no question that that's true. But in this text, it probably is not really addressing that as clearly and definitively as most of us think it does. He really is focusing on the law in a special way. And so while I've said in the past and I've preached truth, I believe also that there are deeper, deeper concerns here that the apostle has. Now, let me talk a bit about this text as it appears in Galatians. This is a bit of an expository sermon, but I don't like to preach heavy expository sermons. They're not edifying to most people. But on the other hand, I do have to address some issues. Now, this particular passage, I want you to notice, is at the heart of the book of Galatians. It actually summarizes everything that has gone on before. And everything that comes after, afterwards is an explication or an elaboration of this particular text. In, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. I also want you to notice that this text is excruciatingly difficult. It doesn't appear so on the f- surface. But when you begin to read it in the original language, you see that it is highly nuanced and highly abbreviated. It's almost poetic. It's a difference in in one sense of, you know how difficult it is for some of us to read poetry as opposed to prose? This section is almost theological poetry. It is dense. Someone described to me one time poetry as, if you will, being uh, dense prose. And so it takes a lot out of you and suggests a lot more. And so every one of these uh, phrases that we find in this text are laden with a meaning and point to a certain thing. Now, most of us, when we've come to this text, have almost always read it through the lens of Martin Luther, the great reformer. And that's the way I've preached a sermon in the past. But really, I have learned in recent years to read this through the lens of Paul and first century Judaism. A different thing is going on. And I'm not going to talk about that today. That would really take us off into the weeds. Come Sunday evening and you can ask me more questions on that. But I want you to know a few things that this is the key verse or key passage in the book of Galatians. And uh, then finally, I, I want to approach this text through a series of questions. I really could not handle all of the explanations here if I were just to deal with it like I would an ordinary sermon. So I'm going to have to pose some questions. Pose some questions. So now listen carefully to the questions. Questions are of all kinds. Sometimes we ask rhetorical questions, which means it's to get you to think and to supply the answer privately or whatever. Sometimes we ask heuristic questions, and heuristic question is a question designed to elicit if you will, an understanding of things. And that's the kind of question, questions that I'm going to pose. Now, I didn't come up with these questions. These questions actually are, uh, I found in the writings of Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar who teaches at Duke University. And when he uh, talked about these questions, he, he, he really fitted these questions for this text. 
So let me take his questions and try to explain this text, and then we'll draw what it means for us today. The first question to consider is, who justifies in this text? Well, that's simple, isn't it? Who justifies? Well, there is a word that underlies that that means much more than just justification. Uh, the verb dikaiou means to justify. Dikaiou means also to vindicate. Dikaiou also means righteousness. Now, all of those words, those three words, righteousness, Justification and vindication have different meanings, but they're all covered by this, this word and its roots and in the sense of the verb. So we have to come up with another word, a modern word that will satisfy and give us a new, if you will, look and fresh look at this text. And I'm going to suggest that we use the word rectification. Rectification. So when our text says, as we find it, in Galatians chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 15, when it says, Who are Jews by birth and not Gentiles? Know that a man is not justified. I want to substitute the word rectified. Now, what does the word rectified mean? It means to make right. It means to make right. Set things right. And so let's use that word. God is doing something in Jesus Christ to set things right. And so who justifies? Clearly, then it is God. It is God who makes things right. He declares us righteous through faith. He vindicates us and will vindicate us in the day of judgment. We also find that we have righteousness through Christ every day that we live. He has made right and is making right. And so therefore, let us use the word rectify. Now, the reason I'm using it, it, it is simply to pose one simple answer to this. God alone rectifies. No one else. No one else rectifies. If you look at verse 16, he says very simply, the promises uh, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 16a, the first part of that verse. And so God does so through the person of Jesus Christ. That is very simple. That's not difficult, except we've, if you will, broadened the term to include make right. Know that a man, he says, is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand that verse, let us turn over to Romans chapter 8. And in verses 33 and 34, we have further from the Apostle Paul an explanation, uh, I believe, of this kind of, of verse and what he means. For what Paul means... In Romans, he also meant in Galatians and vice versa. And so he starts off in verse 33 by asking this question, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies or rectifies. 
Who is then to condemn? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And then he goes on to say, and I quoted it today, who shall separate us from the love of God? But it is God who justifies or rectifies or vindicates. God alone. And in a real sense, that continues all of our life and our final rectification will not be until the end when we are in fact vindicated in Christ. Now the next question is a very simple question. What role does Jesus play in setting things right? What role does he play in setting things right? Well, look at the text again. Verse 16, and this is the crucial verse, it seems to me here. But by faith in Jesus Christ, he says. By faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I've changed my mind. If I were to have preached this seven or eight years ago, I would have said that it is your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's always troubled me the phrase, you are justified through your faith in Jesus Christ in one sense, because it is a kind of work on your part. Let me change this, and it's legitimate in the text. We can make Jesus the subject, and it says then, we are justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, get the difference. We are justified by nothing in us, but by everything being in Jesus Christ, through his faithfulness, we are justified. We failed as covenant partners, or at least Israel did. Failed miserably keeping the covenant, but God finally in the course of time sent forth his son, the faithful covenant partner, and he kept faithful to the very end, even unto death. He was obedient, it says, unto death. And then he was raised from the dead. And so our justification does not lie within some kind of subjective faith that we have, but it lies within God's action in Jesus' death and resurrection through his faithfulness. Through his faithfulness. Now, it is true that we're justified through faith and putting our trust in him. There's no question about that. But there is a deeper level to justification and having faith in Christ. And it is that we have faith in that one who was faithful to the end and justifies us so that we can have faith in him. That's where I've changed my mind. And it has to do with a little Greek grammar that I mentioned last week between the difference between a subjective and an objective genitive, the little word in or of in the genitive case. But that makes sense. And it is absolutely biblical and supported by all the texts that we find from beginning to end. God is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. We are not rectified then through keeping of the law. We're not rectified by our own works either. But in this case, we're not rectified through the keeping of the law. Now, this is important. What has happened here that sets Paul off on this line of thinking? You know what's happened? He's had a tiff with Peter. And when these uh, Judaizers came, Jewish Christians came down to where Paul and Peter were, 
and they were fellowshipping with the Gentiles, Peter and his crowd, he goes over and eats with the, Gentile, the, the Judaizers and keeps kosher law and separates from the sinner. They don't have the law by nature, Gentiles, though they have faith in Christ. Paul is absolutely livid. And he wants to let them to know that you're never, never, never justified through keeping kosher. You are justified through Christ alone. What you have done is nullified what God has done in Christ. He's rectifying everything. The law is good. I had a, an Australian rabbi that I heard once say this. The law is life. And he's right. Do these things and you will live. But what the law cannot do, even though it's, it's, the, it's the law of God and represents the character of God, it cannot provide you, if you will, the power to self-justify. You are justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that alone. That alone. This is a great truth. It is bedrock truth for you and it's bedrock truth for, for me. We are made right through Christ. We are made right with God. We will be made right at the end and vindicated. We're continually being made right at every moment of our life as God works in us in Christ. And so we have not the power to set things right. Notice how futile our attempts are in this world. Look what a mess we're in culturally. And all of our high schemes to solve all of our problems, and I think that we have in the natural realm, to solve our problems through reason and experience. But look where it lands us when we reject divine wisdom. Look at the feeble attempts that we make to solve. We, we, we tried to solve health prob, uh, healthcare problems. We have created so many problems now, and everyone agrees that we're in the biggest mess, healthcare-wise, than we've ever been in the history of this country. And we have no idea what the consequences are still yet. Wait till 19, uh, uh, to, uh, 2014. We'll, we'll, we'll know more. What we do know is that there are no primary doctors. They're all drying up. And uh, what we do know is that everybody's premiums are rising. And what we do know is that there's still 30 million people not going to have health insurance. And that's what it was designed to, to solve. Now, I, I, I don't fault the effort. I fault the effort in the sense that it was certainly not wise, even from a human standpoint, to, to uh, publish nearly 3,000 pages of regulation and rules and then publish another 50,000 on top of that to implement it. <laughs> That's what they used to call Byzantine. That's why the Byzantine Empire failed. fell. It got so weighty and bureaucratic, it just <laughs> crashed. That wakes everybody up, doesn't it? Well, God alone can really justify and deal with the human condition in the heart. Now, let's ask another question. What is the character? What is the character of the new life that we have received in Christ? And let us continue in the text to read it. And let me get to this other part, the last part of the verse. He says here, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. 
If I rebuild what I destroy, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. I'm not going to deal with that at this point. And I don't understand verse 19. And I'll have to admit that I don't understand verse 19. Maybe you do. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I don't entirely understand it. But I do understand the next, I believe. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me read that again. For I have been, he says, after he, he says that God justifies or, or makes right, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If it is God who justifies or rectifies matters in Christ through his death and his resurrection, particularly his death, then I share in that death. For we are baptized into his death. And that means that the old life has come to an end. And I have a new life. It's holy in Christ. God is making things right and setting things right in Christ. And when I am in him, he's setting things right. He's doing something in you that eternity only will reveal. That's suggested in the second hymn that we sang. Now, let me say what this experience is in Jesus Christ. It is not a mystical experience. There is a technical definition for mystical experiences. William James, a great uh, philosopher in American history, uh, that genius of a book that he wrote, Varieties of Religious Experience, does the best that I know to, to help us understand what a mystical experience is. It's not climbing up a mountain and having some kind of awful experience are being, if you will, taken out of yourself and you're standing over here and God is doing something. And it's not just that, as I had one of our members say some years ago, you know, I don't love anyone. Jesus loves through me. I don't mean that either. No, you love or you don't love. That's not exactly what this text means. So it's not a mystical experience. What it does mean simply that our old life has terminated and we are experiencing a new life or we've entered into a new sphere and we are now living in the sphere of Christ. And that extends we are in Christ entirely. It's like walking from one room to the next. You walk out of one room and you close the door and you go into the next room and you're in another room and you experience it. The old room is your old self. The new room is being in Christ. We're in the sphere of Christ. And then I want you to understand then this language much like that. He goes on to say here very simply, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified, he says, with Christ. He died on the cross when Christ died. 
And I no longer live that old life, but Christ now lives in me, or I live in the sphere of Christ. He surrounds me. He's in my eyes, my thinking, my mind. The life I live in the body, I live by faith, or the faithfulness in the Son of God, who continues to be the faithful covenant partner to lead me to heaven. Now, what does this mean, Pastor? What do you mean by all of this? That's nice, high-sounding theology. Well, it is. Let's see if we can get the tire on the road. It's been in the factory. It's been made. Let's see if we can put it on a car and put it on the road. This is Father's Day, isn't it? I have at least one application. We need a new paradigm for fatherhood in this country, and it's going to come from the Christian community. It's not going to come from the world. We have fathers siring children and not raising them. That's appalling. I just read about a man in Tennessee who's fathered 21 children. Maybe you saw it, something like that, 1921. Can you imagine? And then the next question from the reporter was, well, are you supporting him? No, I would like to. That's appalling. This civilization cannot, cannot survive if enough people think and behave that way. They're tearing at the fabric of society, and we give them money to support their lifestyle. If that person would actually, I think, be nine to five on the job, he would not have time to father so many children. Moreover, I think it means that we need to be a father to the fatherless. Some of you fathers there, you know, we, we are surrogate fathers sometimes. We have to stand in. A lot of children don't have fathers. Notice how much emphasis the Bible places on the widow and the orphan. You know, Lynn Atkinson told me a touching story. Uh, you know Lynn. He was here. And he says, my, uh, I don't know, I think his father left the family and it left him and his brother, maybe a sister, I don't know, at home. They were poor in West Tennessee, not, in Memphis. They had nothing. And he said a guy came from the church, the Baptist church down the road, and came and befriended my mother. And he and his wife would started stopping by and asked if we, they could take us to church. And they'd put my mother in the back seat and put us in the back seat and take us to church. And I came to know the Lord through that way. And what a wonderful man he's become. What a wonderful man he's become. He now has a number of children, and he takes care of every one of them. That's what it means for Christ to live in you. For Christ to live in you, it may mean that you will go to a third world country at least on short term. It may mean that you'll be working with the poor and the downcast. It may mean that you take that person you know is discouraged and spend some time with them. This is what it means for Christ to live in you. After all, he came into the world to seek and to save the lost. He says, cast your care upon me, for I care for you. And that's what it means to live in the sphere of Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. It means to comfort those who are going through difficult times. I went home Monday and Tuesday. I, when I say home, I'm 
talking about West Virginia. My brother was having surgery and he got bad news. I, I've possessed me all week long and our whole family. He's five years younger than I am. We've never had anything in our life to touch our family. Everything's been smooth sailing. My mother passed away, but she was just short of 90. Never had anything major. We've suffered some through in many various ways that everyone does, but nothing major. And so my brother actually, apart from modern medicine and healing, he faces his end. And that's why I chose this hymn. Not only should we comfort people as such, but I want you to look at this hymn. This hymn was written by Natalie Sleeth. She graduated from Wellesley in music. She married a Methodist minister. She was a devout Christian, has written all kinds of hymns. And if you don't know some of them, get a hold of them. They're delightful, all of them. Her husband, at a fairly young age, was diagnosed with cancer. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, she composed this hymn. And the title of it is not Hymn of Promise. That's the way it appears in the Methodist hymnal. The, the title of the hymn is In the Bulb There is a Flower. Out of everything come greater possibilities if you read this hymn. And if you read the last, you know why. In our death, a resurrection at last, a victory unrevealed until its season, something God alone can see and do. That's what Paul is saying. We can't rectify anything. We try to make life livable. But when it comes to the deepest problem of sin and alienation from God, we can do nothing. He must, from his side, through the faithfulness of his son, who died on the cross and was raised on the third day, the one who comes for us alone can rectify and is rectifying. But you have been called to share that ministry with him in the body of Christ. To be a father to your children, to father to the fatherless. To comfort the mourning. To lift up the weak. To take the gospel to the bush. Or to the ghetto. Or to the poor. That's what Paul means. So now let me close by reading the text one more time. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified or rectified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, or we have put our trust in his faithfulness that we might be rectified and justified by faith in Christ, not observing the law, because by observing the law, no one can be rectified or justified. 
If while we seek to be rectified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through, though the law, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And you might add, I in him. The life I live in the body, I live by faith or the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.